welcome back to the formal review. Today, we'll be having a very special episode. Now sit back, maybe grab a drink, and let's talk about this movie. What's up, everyone, and welcome back to the formal review. This is season three, episode 30, and I thank you all for joining in once again. Now, today's episode is the eighth in the monthly look back at history series. If this is the first time you tuning in, in each of these episodes, I, along with a special guest, look back at a very important moment in history. We usually discuss everything that surrounds the importance of that event, along with a film that is connected to that story. It may be the creation of a comic book character, or it may be a significant moment in a war, or perhaps something completely different. Each episode will be absolutely different from each other. However, listeners will never know when in the month that episode will drop, the topic, the film, or who will be joining me. The only way to keep up with it is to follow me on social media to see when the newest episode is about to be released, or just subscribe to your favorite podcast service. If you missed the last episode, I am currently doing a Halloween special episodes for the month of October. The last episode was on American Psycho, and a few others will be coming out this week and also in the following weeks. So definitely subscribe on your favorite podcast service and you'll hear those and before i get started on anything i know i talk about this at the end but the data shows that most people skip over that part <laughs> so i do want to reiterate the importance of leaving reviews on your favorite podcast service because those reviews really help me grow and improve a lot of you have talked to me offline but i do really appreciate the reviews that already are out there if everyone could just continue doing that and putting your thoughts on the podcast out there or any way that you think that i should could grow and make this more entertaining feel free and i'll look at them and i'll grow as such so anyway now today october 13th marks a very significant event in history 30 years ago in 1990 marked the end of a multi-faceted civil war in lebanon but this war started developing many years beforehand i won't go into all the details right now but in short it's a very complicated war and we'll get into the full details with my guests in a little bit now before i introduce my guests i do want to preface this episode with a slight spoiler warning and this movie was released in 2000 so you have had time to see it but we do talk about some spoilers with this movie we do try to not ruin the movie for you but if you have issues with that i definitely recommend going to watch the movie first and then come back here what we have to say about it but if you don't care about that keep listening now, my guest for this episode is my good friend, Nasir. We've been friends for about seven years, and I thought bringing him on to talk about this specific event, it would be a really good conversation to have, but more on that in a little bit. I now want to welcome my guest, Nasir. Hey, man. Yo, what's up? Not much, man. How are you? I'm good. I'm good. Thanks for coming on. I appreciate it. We've obviously been friends for a long time now. Right. And obviously with this historic event, I thought that bringing you on would bring a good perspective for my listeners to know from somebody, especially from Lebanon. So why don't you tell my listeners and everything about your background and everything? Uh, yeah, sure. My name is Nasir. I'm from Lebanon, born and raised. I left Lebanon when I was almost 18 years old, just a month before my 18th birthday. And I came to the U.S. as a student, did my undergrad there. And after that, I moved to Canada. I did my master's at McGill University in Montreal, and I stayed in Montreal ever since. So, But yeah, like the early stages of my life up to early adulthood was all in Lebanon. So, so because the Civil War and everything kind of ended pretty much right around when you were born, obviously you weren't around during it, but 
when Americans and stuff like we talk about the Civil War, we obviously it's a historic thing that's happened over 200 years ago, but that's something that relatively is new in comparison to Lebanon, and especially as you're growing up in this. So what comes to mind when you think about it, just in general? I mean, it's so recent and for my generation. So as you mentioned, so the Civil War ended at the end of 1989, beginning of 1990. And I was born in 1990. So, and mm-hmm. the Civil War had went on for 15 years. So it started in 1975, went on for 15 years till 1990. You know, even though like I was not born when the Civil War was happening, growing up, the ramifications and the effect of the Civil War were very present still and visible in our everyday life. Mm-hmm. I remember when I was a kid and when we used to go to Beirut, it was just a normal thing to see skyscrapers half destroyed or riddled with bolt holes, highways destroyed, highway bridges, some of them with shells, you know, <laughs> in them, you know, like, and that was the scene, you know, and this was when I was around five, six, seven years old. Throughout this whole time, the whole country was undergoing reconstruction, but like it took a while before everything was fixed up. Mm-hmm. When I hit my teen years, at that point, the country was kind of rebuilt, but it took a while to rebuild 15 years worth of destruction, right? In 15 years, this civil war was so ugly and long and destructive that in 15 years, no part of the country was spared. In terms of infrastructure, civilian buildings, anything, a lot of it was destroyed. So mm-hmm. it took a while for it to be rebuilt. And also growing up, besides what I just described, Lebanon, as a result of the civil war, was still under the Syrian influence. The Syrian army mm-hmm. went into Lebanon during the civil war with the green light from from the Americans under the guise that they want to go in to try to calm things down. But obviously that was not Hafiz al-Assad, who's Bashar al-Assad's father, the current dictator in Syria, his father was ruling at the time, you know, like he used that as an excuse just to bring in like about 40,000 Syrian soldiers into Lebanon so that he can control the country. And in the aftermath of the civil war, the Syrian army stayed all this time and Syria was practically in control of the whole country you know and growing up we'd see inside Lebanon imagine like growing up in your own country and seeing like roadblocks set up by foreign troops imagine you in America for example imagine for some reason you're driving down the road and then a Mexican soldier has to stop you and question you or like ask for your ID card like mm-hmm. how, how bizarre that would be you know yeah. that, that, that was the reality that we were living through you know up until 2005 when our prime minister at the time was assassinated and the prime minister was popular among all of the Lebanese and that kind of sparked a revolution and with the support of the international community we were able to pressure Syria into leaving Lebanon and that's when the Syrian army left. That's the gist of it. I left Lebanon around 2008 after the Syrian army went out. Lebanon, you know, is, is very tumultuous. <laughs> so if you're keeping up with the news, a lot of things happen between then and now. Mm-hmm. It, it, it seems like we never catch a break. That's for, yeah. for many reasons. I think the country is remains severely divided. So like going back to the civil war, because I don't want to go on tangents, because you can talk about Lebanon for, for, for years. <laughs> it's just so complicated. So the civil war war started as a conflict between two political schools of thought. In the aftermath of World War II, the British who were in Palestine, Israel nowadays, they had that country under control. And the British, during World War I actually, when they took that area from under the Ottoman rule, under their support, you know, the Jewish migration from Europe started happening to Palestine. That's because the British government during World War I received help from Jewish leaders. And those mm-hmm. Jewish leaders had managed to get a promise from the British government that they will aid them to establish a Jewish country in the aftermath 
aftermath mm-hmm. of, of World War One. And there were talks about where that country would be. And eventually, you know, like for historical reasons, that Jewish leadership, you know, said, oh, we prefer to be in Palestine because that's historically where we came from and we'd like to establish a country there. So under the support of the British, the European Jewish migration started happening. When World War II came around and ended, you know, at that time, you know, the whole decolonization movement started happening where, you know, empires as, as we knew them ended. And, you know, mm-hmm. France and Britain started moving out of their colonies. And at that time, you know, that the Jewish settlers that came from Europe had grown militant, actually. And they started because they wanted to push to establish their own country. And they started building up militias and even attacking the British troops that were in Palestine at the time, leading the British mm-hmm. to actually classify them as terrorists. But anyway, fast forward, things change, you know, like World War II ends, the British leave, you know, and then in 1948, I think it was when there was a push and international support for Israel to be established as a Jewish state. And then Palestine mm-hmm. was thus divided. Some of the land was given to Israel, even though there was a decision that this other land will be given to the Palestinians to form their state. Obviously, the people who lived there did not agree with that. It's like, you know, like we lived here all this time. Now you're telling us we have to leave. And I'm simplifying things. I'm probably glossing off a lot of details. But just to give people the background, you know, like that's, yeah. that's where the conflict stems from, you know. You had basically people who've been living there, the Palestinians who happened, some of them were Christians, Muslims, and, and Jews. And then you had also the Jewish movement came from outside that wanted to establish a Jewish country in that area. So uh, after that, there were several wars happening between the Palestinians and then coming Israelis. And that led to refugees being pushed into neighboring countries like Jordan and Lebanon because we are at the borders mm. of current day Israel. Over time, you know, as, as the situation developed in, in Lebanon and the neighboring countries, but let's limit our focus to Lebanon, there was kind of two political factions. Mm. One faction said that this is not our concern. We should not interfere in this conflict. Let's just stay on the side. And another faction was like, no, these are our like Arab brethren. We need to help them in their plight because what happened to them is not right. Mm-hmm. And obviously, you know, like there are many other complicated issues. Lebanon was kind of divided already along religious lines because that's what the French did, you know, when Lebanon was under the French mandate after World War One, up until World War Two, when the French left <clears throat> around the same time when Israel was established. They divided Lebanon along religious lines. So the, the way they did, they distributed power in such a way such that, first of all, the Christians at the time, they gave them the majority number of seats in the parliament. So the parliament was, I think, 60% uh, Christian, 40% Muslim. And they also kind of made it a rule that the president can only be a Christian. So they kind of did a divide and conquer along religious lines, which Mm -hmm. obviously left a lot of people, you know, kind of feeling disenfranchised. And this whole feeling of disenfranchisement was festering. So fast forward to 1975, as I said, you had those two political factions divided around whether to support or not support the Palestinians. And it happened to be that obviously the majority of the Christians who were politically more powerful in Lebanon at the time with the idea that we should not intervene and you had some Christians and the majority of the Muslims that said no we should intervene and like we should help and then that's where the conflict in Lebanon started Mm -hmm. it started as a political division and then uh, as things developed and as you know like things started happening and kind of snowballed you know but you had all these issues festering underneath it was like how do you see it it was like the the fire or kind of the burning coal underneath the ashes Mm -hmm. 
you know, it was all hidden, but all these festering issues were there and it just kept piling up until it hit the spark in 1975. And there was an incident where some Christians were killed in church. And then there was a retaliation from a Christian militia that killed a bus full of Palestinians. And that was the main spark that kind of started mm -hmm. the, the battles. And it kind of snowballed right. a, a blown out war. So what started mm -hmm. along, along the line of political division, whether or not to support the Palestinian cause, over 15 years devolved into an ugly civil war that was fought along religious lines. So Lebanon has 18 religious sects, so Christians are divided among several sects and Muslims are divided among several sects. And during that war, mm -hmm. basically every sect was fighting every other sect, even within the same sect. Jeez. The Shia were fighting each other, even the Christian Maronites who are the majority of the Christians in Lebanon were fighting each other. It was ugly, you know, and neighbors were fighting each other. There were massacres and it was a very, very ugly and bloody war. Mm -hmm. and, th and this fact is, is the reason why we still feel the ramifications of this war until this day. Lebanon has not healed. And this is part of the reason that the country is still facing the problems that it's facing nowadays. Yeah, yeah. Like a lot of the things that you said, like I have done some research on it, but some of those things I didn't know. And it's just like, disclaimer kind here, of... like I like history and I know the history of my country. And But what I described obviously glosses over a lot of facts and a lot of details right. just meant to give kind of an overview, a general picture of a general mm -hmm. context of, of the whole civil war and it's by no means a, a scholarly <laughs> description of the events you know right so when i first invited you to come on you told me that the issues talking specifically about the civil war is a very politicized topic so i think you kind of touched on it a little bit why is that still such a politicized thing it's kind of simple and not very simple i guess it's kind of human <laughs> nature sometimes people just don't want to admit the horrifying things that they did. That's part mm -hmm. of it, I think. And the Lebanese society has not come to grips on admitting and being honest with each other, you know, like the different factions of Lebanese society to kind of say, we all wronged each other and it's time mm. to admit that and heal and move on, oh, yeah, especially okay. right now. So if you think about it, the war was fought from 1975 until 1990. So generation of my parents, mm -hmm. all of them, they lived throughout the war that was their early adulthood way into like middle age, you know? And Right. Throughout this whole time, they were the main driver of society, right? My generation, mm -hmm. the people who were born in 1990, we know about the war. Maybe in your family, you have an uncle who died, you know, or like right. uh, an aunt who died, a cousin, you know, an older cousin. But like for us, we did not live the war. We just know it and we live with its aftermath. So mm -hmm. as our generation becomes more prominent in the political base, you know, changes are happening. I mean, they're not as fast as we'd like them to be, but... You know, mm -hmm. the recent demonstrations, revolutions that have been happening, the toppled a couple governments, you know, could be proof to that. Things are changing, mm -hmm. but slowly. So part of it is time, the people who lived through the civil war and, you know, saw how ugly things can get, you know, mm -hmm. it's hard for them to start trusting. Because as I said, it's the war started as a political issue and then turned out to become just sectarian violence. So people will mm -hmm. care whether you're a good person or not person. Like, if you're not from my sect, I'm gonna shoot you. There were many massacres where, let's say, I don't wanna single any party, but let's say group A, you know, would set up a roadblock and then they check your identity card. And if you're not in that group or in a group B that they hate, they will just shoot you. Many massacres happened mm -hmm. that way, you know, like it was very, very ugly. So people who lived through that still harbor resentment, hate, fear, you know, like this happened when these people were living together, were neighbors, were friends, and all of a sudden now, like, 
could be that you know someone that you know that will shoot you just because you're not part of their group so to speak right you could imagine how much distrust and division that can sow within a society so that that's a big hurdle mm-hmm. the fact that the generation who lived the civil war is still present mm-hmm. in the site as a whole and in the economy and the politics but the role is fading you know as this is the natural course of things I guess and also the fact that the leadership the warlords so after 1990 when the United States sat with Saudi Arabia Syria the regional powers to try to resolve the Lebanese conflict because it was just going for far too long and there was it reached an impasse basically the solution that they presented is that they gave amnesty to all the warlords and then mm-hmm. they gave them a way to transition into political power so the leaders who were fighting the civil war became the members of parliament ruling the country in the aftermath of the civil war mm-hmm. which is kind of unheard of these people committed war crimes were criminals you know they led militias you know and now here they are ruling the country and governing I mean, it wasn't an easy problem to solve because these people had allegiances on the ground because kind of the country was divided into factions and these leaders, mm-hmm. you know, had their supporters and it was hard to bring a new leadership to the country at the time. I'm not minimizing that problem and saying, oh, it could have been solved better because oh, to be honest, I don't know the answer. But the fact that these same warlords are still to this day, the members of parliament, the, the head of government, the mm-hmm. president, you know, of the country, that the speaker of the parliament are the warlords that led the civil war. I think that has prevented the country from actually moving on and also from these people responsible for the civil war to be actually held accountable for their actions because there is no accountability. It was just, well, that happened. All right, guys, uh, I guess we move on now. And, you know, the people were left to kind of lick their wounds and try to move on after families were decimated, you know, massacres had happened, you know. There was no real healing. That all got got brushed aside in the interest of political agendas and certain international or regional powers having their guy running Mm -hmm. the show in a certain area of the country. Right. Obviously, one of the more recent events that has happened in Lebanon, like, went all over social media, is the explosion that happened about, uh, when was it, like, a month or... August 4th. Wow. Wow, time flies, man. Right. That feels like that was still almost yesterday. I mean, it was such a big explosion. I remember, like, when it happened, obviously, I texted you and stuff, and luckily, none of your family was hurt by it. But after that, interestingly, I started seeing you a little bit more, like, active. Maybe your sister or somebody, like, put out a video of you at some type of protest. And you, like, talked about the corruption and stuff going on in Lebanon and trying to grow and everything. So was that corruption kind of the same corruption that you were just talking about? Precisely, yeah. Basically, the solution that was put for the Lebanese problem after the civil war kind of took the militia's mentality and the, mm-hmm. and the warlord's mentality from the street and brought it into the state's institutions. So now, okay. like, you did, you did not have a parliament that's concerned of representing the Lebanese people. You had the parties in the parliament that reflected the religious division, you know, among the religious sects. Then when it comes to forming governments and distributing responsibilities, it became that each politician who was a warlord previously will die divert like uh, let's say this warlord now is responsible for uh, the ministry of energy right this guy will Mm -hmm. only give like contracts to companies that either he owns or some of 
his war buddies own you know and mm -hmm. so they moved the militia mentality from the street into the government and basically right. over the course of what like 30 years they robbed the country basically and the Lebanese people from all the money that basically the people were generating putting in the bank system like taxes etc all that basically was misused mishandled stolen you know due to corruption mm -hmm. they lined their pockets they lined their people's pockets and they did very little for the greater good of the country and to take care of the Lebanese people uh, okay. so uh, and yeah this as you said like going back to August 4th explosion the investigations so far have revealed that the explosion was because of major major oversight and corruption that happened at the port of Beirut basically this shipment mm -hmm. of ammonium nitrate which is like 3,000 tons was present in the port for over like six or seven years I think and the reason why it was there it seems like it has not been proven that investigation is ongoing because the guy responsible for the customs of the port was trying to sell it for a profit even though he was mm. not supposed to store it there and like he was told multiple times to go to the responsible authority which would be the ministry of transportation mm -hmm. and like, handle that shipment like move it put it in a safe place or dispose of it correctly but like he kind of just brushed that off and kept that in the warehouse in inside of the city the biggest port in the mm. country which is right in the side of the city he was probably selling some some of the ammonium nitrate in hopes of selling the whole thing you know and making a couple million dollars off the deal jeez yeah, exactly. So that shows you how far the corruption goes. And this guy was an employee, but like it's not like he's very, very high up. So right. corruption goes because, you know, what happens is like you, you have the minister, which is like a member of the cabinet in the U.S., you know, it's equivalent mm -hmm. to that. Like, So he's responsible for an executive branch of the, the government, let's say transportation. And that guy, like when a Christian comes, he will hire his Christian people in certain key roles. And it doesn't matter what, what their qualifications are, where they came from, whether they can fulfill them role or not you know mm -hmm. they will just do it and the muslim guy comes and then he does the same thing he gets rid of the christian mm -hmm. guy his muslim guys or whatever and mm -hmm. yeah when when these people people are in those roles because you know the corruption starts from the top all the way down you know they don't care about like actually doing the job but they care about like using their time in that position to basically line their pockets as much as possible making as much money as they can so a corrupt guy like that you know costs lebanon hundreds of people died as a result and you know like we have built Billions of dollars in damages. Mm -hmm. uh, some estimates are between seven to fourteen billion dollars. So uh, yeah, just for him to make a couple million dollars worth of legal profit. So that goes to show you how corrupt the country is. Yeah. yeah, that that's awful. So to move back into the movie, so Waltz with Bashir is a 2008 Israeli animated war documentary drama film written, produced, and directed by Ari Folman. The film was made from Folman's memories of the aftermath of the 1982 Sabra and Shatila massacre, which took place when he was an 18-year-old soldier for the Israeli army. The massacre was the killing of mostly Palestinians and Lebanese Shiites by a militia close to a predominantly Christian right-wing organization party in the Sabra neighborhood and the adjacent Shatila refugee camp in Beirut, Lebanon. The soldiers were ordered to clear the Palestinian Liberation Organization fighters out of this area. Now afterwards, they did an investigation of the killings to find out how many people were actually killed. However, they did not ask Lebanese witnesses to come forward and Palestinian survivors were afraid to testify and some other people were forbidden to give a testimony. As such, he determined that there was only about 460 people that had 
had been killed, which included 15 women and 12 children. However, this has been noted to be a huge miscount as Israeli intelligence estimated between 7 and 800 people were killed and the Palestinian Red Crescent claimed about 2,000 dead. So it's a pretty broad range and to this day it's kind of unsure how many people were killed in this specific event. So this film follows Fullman's attempt to regain his memories of the war through therapy as well as conversation with old friends and other Israelis that were present in Beirut around the time of this massacre. When it comes to this movie specifically, it's one that has been banned in some Arab countries, including Lebanon. And it's interesting because it's one also, it's made by a Israeli. And one of the, the issues with the film as going into it, you and I were talking offline about, because this was a movie that even I haven't seen before. So we were wondering how accurate it was going to be or how one-sided it was going to be because it's not the point of view from the Lebanese, it's the point of view from the Israelis, which, I mean, that's one out of how many different sides of this you were mentioning. There's many, many sects of people fighting, but, and so, before I saw this, I saw that this is banned. It's definitely pro-Israel, but you texted me after you watched it, and that's kind of not how it is, and yeah. it, it's just still interesting to me that, that this movie's banned, and I think, based on what you said, it's, they're in a way, ashamed of the horrible things that were done. What are your thoughts on that? Alright, so you're right. Part of it is shame and unwillingness to look yourself in the mirror and see what you've done, you know, and admit it and figure out how to deal with it. That's definitely part of it. The other part of it, we've been talking about the Lebanese civil war, corruption, Lebanon, but we have not explained where Israel comes into play in all of this, right? Because for people who don't know the, the history of the country or anything about the Lebanese-Israeli wars, you know, they're like, alright, so you're talking about civil war in Lebanon, what the hell Israel has to do with all this stuff, right? which mm -hmm. makes sense but like yeah so to give people an idea so basically what happened after israel established itself as a state obviously palestinian resistance formed you know they were trying to fight win their land back and also there was a, arab coalitions that happened to support them all these failed around the time that the lebanese civil war happened the palestinian liberation organization otherwise known as plo which was led by the late palestinian president yasser arafat that died like i don't know years ago he was the president for long time you know or, or the leader and they had moved their operations because they were pushed out from the palestinian territories into lebanon and they had their army and militia and this is where things started getting heated in lebanon because people were saying all right these guys are coming in here you know they're setting up roadblocks they are not lebanese but they have their own weapons their army and kind of attacks the sovereignty of the country and those people in retrospect when you think about it, they were right but even then because of the general arab climate at the time was no we should support the Palestinians. So Israel basically, after that, around that time, 1975, the PLO was had started launching attacks into Israel from Lebanese territory, and obviously that didn't mm -hmm. sit well with Israel. So th that was the reason why Israel went into Lebanon, and that's how the Lebanese-Israeli wars started, right? The big ones. I mean, like. I think the first war happened in 1949. I don't know the dates exactly, but like it was around the formation of Israel as a state where there was a war between the Israelis and the Palestinians and a lot of people got kicked out of their homes, you know, and into neighboring countries. And there was a war between the neighboring countries and Israel that ended in not, obviously nothing getting resolved and it continued on. I mean, the Israeli-Palestinian conflict continues to our this current day. So that situation still has not been resolved. So as the civil war was happening and the Lebanese state had basically became a failed state, it was chaos. Everyone was fighting everyone and the PLO was launching attacks into Israel from the least territory the Israelis were like all right we're gonna invade Lebanon to kick the PLO out mm -hmm. and uh, in 1982 which 
is the year of waltz with Bashir happened. Israel came into Lebanon and they reached all the way to Beirut. And that's when the events in the movie transpired. Now you're asking about the movie being banned in Lebanon. So basically Lebanon and Israel remain in a state of war. There is a truce, but the countries remain in a state of war. There is a lot of weariness. Actually, it's forbidden by law, for example, to buy Israeli products, for example, or even to meet an Israeli citizen and be friends with them. That could get you to go to jail, you know, because we're not allowed to go into Israel, obviously, as Lebanese citizens, and Israelis are not allowed to come to Lebanon. You know, the countries are in a state of war. Mm. That's part of the reason why the Ministry of Information would say we're not going to allow this movie to be screened in Beirut or Lebanon. But also there is part of it that people think, oh, it's just Israeli propaganda, you know, like they're going to have to try to twist the facts, blame everybody but themselves, you know, like, so you have also that kind of line of thinking. But you have many reasons what could lead to the ban. Yeah. But I read online that despite all this, like, some group of people are like, no, screw this, we're still going to show it. And they showed it in one cinema in Beirut. Right. I think that was the only time that movie was officially shown in Lebanon. Obviously, like these days, you can get everything, you know, whether it's online yeah. or digitally, you know, I'm pretty sure almost everybody has seen the movie so it's not like you yeah. prevent people from not seeing the movie so internet's not blocked or you know monitored in any way yeah so now going into the actual movie itself what did you like about it because the things that i thought were like really really cool was one the intro to this movie i thought was so engaging i thought it was a powerful way into, yeah you know like it was kind of messed up but like the whole story you know yeah i, I wasn't expecting that and it, the animation of the dogs that really look honestly kind of demonic running full speed and kind of like this real intense music and everything that intro i didn't know what was going on but i was a hundred percent engrossed right. in that moment and this is just the opening credits yeah 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 what's so interesting is like you describe them as demonic dogs and that's what i thought oh here comes some metaphor now about like how these right. dogs are like are the lebanese fighters that were fighting against the israeli army or whatever but then twist was no these actually are the dogs that the guy had to shoot it wasn't that they represented something bad in fact they represented his guilt you know because he had to shoot these dogs as he described later when they were invading the villages so that they would not alert palestinian fighters that were hiding in those villages that the israeli army is invading it was an interesting twist i thought the exact same thing as you did thought it was this is going to be some metaphor of like you said representative of the lebanese side of it and this is just like the jewish but then it wasn't that and i thought that was really well done in that sense with the story of how everything just feels very dreamlike especially in the flashback scenes it's so i guess fantasy like in, in a way and then you see even how the director trying to figure out what happened at the um oh what's it called the massacre that happened and he, he's trying to figure all that out and you're kind of trying to figure that out too because he's just going around like interviewing essentially these people and just trying to piece together everything and it was such a cool way to do it especially when the ending is just really powerful because of how everything up to that point was this animated dream world and then it shows a yeah exactly and it's just like whoa it hits you you're right you're right yeah, I totally agree. They did a good job in illustrating the storyline. And I'm guessing, you know, all these storylines are, are real. Mm -hmm. Because the interesting part of, about this movie, the reason why I had kind of... I walked at this movie with an open mind. But because it was telling, you know, the events from the viewpoint of the Israeli soldiers, I had this idea that it might be biased. But 
after I had seen the whole movie, it actually, I didn't think it was. There were some comments made sometimes that bothered me. Like, I remember one of the soldiers, this kind of stuck out to me. Remember the scene where we go into an orchard and there's a boy that attacks them with an RPG? Yes, yes. Before that, he was talking about it. He said, oh, we're just going in there to hunt some terrorists or get some terrorists. Hold up, you know, you are the invading force. And you're yeah. describing the people fighting against you as terrorists. How does that work, you know? <laughs> like, so mm -hmm. you are the foreign army in another people's land, you know? So, right. you know, like how do you describe the other people, etc. But like beyond those little things, you know, particularly, I think maybe this was even the only thing that kind of really bothered me. Like, I didn't think there was bias. In fact, you know, like there were scenes actually in, in the movie, maybe what I don't like, someone doesn't know like who the Israeli leadership is. In the movie, they show two pictures that were two guys that were on the telephone giving mm -hmm. orders. And one of them is Ariel Sharon, which was the, I think the defense minister at the time, and who mm -hmm. became the Israeli prime minister for a long time after that. And he was Israeli version of John Bolton, if he likes war and he likes to, he's ruthless, especially towards the Palestinians and Arabs. And he was leading the operation mm -hmm. during that time. And also they show the Israeli prime minister talking to him. And even though it might be something that I don't completely like, but I think they did an okay job of doing it. I don't think they emphasized a lot the Israeli responsibility over the Sabra and Chatila massacres, but they did touch on it. Remember like when he was talking about how one of the commanders had talked to Ariel Sharon? They called him Eric Sharon, I think, in the, mm. in the movie. And he told them that we were getting news that, you know, a massacre is happening. And the guy was like, oh, did you say it yourself? And he was like, no, but my man told me. And the guy was like, it's okay, it's noted, whatever. You know, and he kind of, you know, didn't do anything about it. Like they touched on it. And in fact, you know, like later on, like investigations by United Nations and many different national organizations have proved, have put blame on Israel and actually have proved that the massacre was done in cooperation. It was planned and executed. You know, they tried to like in the, in the movie to put most of the blame on the Christian phalangists, which was the Christian mm -hmm. militia in Lebanon that did the massacre right. against the Palestinians in the Sabra and Shetila and refugee camps of Palestinians in Lebanon. But the matter of the fact is that the Israeli leadership had played a big role in helping and making the massacre happen. They they were standing right outside mm -hmm. of the camp, lighting up the camp, you know, by flares the whole night. They knew exactly what's going on, actually. And there are reports that the leadership, like that Hubaika guy, was in touch with Sharon. And like everyone knew what was going on, but they didn't do anything on purpose because they wanted to scare the PLO and the Palestinians out. If you don't mm -hmm. leave, this is what's going to happen. So they used the, the rage that the Christians had because the president, who was the leader of the Phalanges at the time, Bashir Jemail, had, had just been assassinated. And they used the few and the rage that they had directed it towards the Palestinians and the Christian militia at the time was gonna direct its fear at the Palestinians regardless but they helped them the Israelis gave them cover to direct it at the sovereign Shatila refugee camps and they allowed mm -hmm. them to commit the massacre where thousands of people died I mean we're talking about like obviously real events here that have happened and like this film is a documentary but what's really interesting is that it doesn't feel like that which i thought also again it goes into that whole idea of the movie doesn't feel real for the first i guess 95 percent of the movie and then the last five minutes it's like oh crap with everything that you've talked about already it's that shows even more so how powerful this movie is and i think that's a really like interesting perspective because obviously when it comes to looking at the israeli side yeah you're right it's they're the invaders 
creating force and there's going to be i would say a little bit of bias from right. the perspective i think they try to be as subjective as possible and sticking to uh, storytelling from the view of the israeli soldiers and what they went through mm. and what they saw and they touched on the israeli culpability and the fact that the israeli leadership knew about the massacre and they were in a way the partners that made it happen mm -hmm. but they shied away from directly calling it that they just left right. it for the viewer to either go look it up or get to that conclusion probably for many reasons political reasons the fact that you know it's an israeli film you know here's what they did well they, they touched upon this very very sensitive subject when you see something like this you think the jews in europe had just went through in the world war ii like horrific Holocaust, yeah. horrific treatment where they were put into these ghettos and massacred and killed and then here you have a jewish government inflicting the same kind of misery on mm -hmm. other people that's right. very hard for the israeli society and the israelis also to face themselves in the mirror and say yes we did that mm. that must have been hard and i think that's the reason why they shied away from blatantly saying yes we were responsible they just left it for the viewer to reach that conclusion right the only thing that i didn't really like about the movie i think that when it was the present of the movie not the flashback it was a little slow i honestly was more in intrigued on the flashbacks and then but some of the flashbacks were really trippy for my taste i wasn't a fan of every single time just because it was just so outrageous but at the same time though it, it's again it's kind of in a dreamlike fashion because like i mean how many times when you have a dream it's so ridiculous that you wake up it's like what the hell was that <laughs> it makes sense from that perspective it's just it was hard for me at times i was like this is really odd <laughs> the other thing that i really liked about the movie just is like the illustration of like the Lebanese landscape that the streets of Beirut I think they must have used like pictures from the time as, as base because it's it all looked very very accurate you know there was some mm -hmm. like the street where, where they were showing the soldiers in the scene when they were pinned down this is a street in the coastal area of Beirut like I've, I've walked down that street you know like it, mm -hmm. you know it was so bizarre to, to like see all that it, it, it oh looked, wow yeah it was, it was it was very good illustration you know on the Lebanese landscape etc you know like it was hard for me to watch because of the like depicting the destruction this mm -hmm. is, you know like kind of seeing my country depicted this way but also that's kind of how it looked back then you know so I, mm -hmm. I get it but like for me it was kind of emotional and tough to see you know also like what bothered me a lot like the war was happening on our land and when you know the Israeli soldiers goes back to Israel and everything is fine you know our mm -hmm. land like it was others fight on our land you know like Israelis fighting the Palestinians on Lebanese territory and as a result mm -hmm. our country was getting destroyed while they were flying back home right. but like i mean this is not to say that it's the israelis fault because obviously lebanon was in civil war so lebanese people have a lot of responsibility too uh, this is not to absolve mm -hmm. lebanese people from the responsibility but like as a lebanese person you know i couldn't help but think about that so. Right. So, kind of going into a recap. So, Waltz with Bashir premiered at the 2008 Cannes Film Festival and has grossed over $11 million against a production budget of only $2 million. And it has won a Golden Globe Award for Best Foreign Picture and an NSFC Award for Best Film, a Cesar Award for Best Foreign Film, and an IDA Award for Feature Documentary. And it was nominated an Academy Award for Best Foreign Film, a BAFTA Award for Best Film Not in the English Language, and an Annie Award for Best Animated Feature. It has a 96% fresh 
rating on Rotten Tomatoes based on 149 critics. The general consensus said it is a wholly innovative original and vital his history lesson with pioneering animation. Waltz with Bashir delivers its message about the Middle East in a mesmerizing fashion because that means essentially that 96% of people do think that this is a movie you should watch. Metacritic it holds a 91 out of 100 based on 33 credits which indicates critical acclaim. This movie is pretty much loved by critics and pretty much by all audience members because we've kind of obviously talked about why we both like the film a lot and I think that even looking back like at it I mean this movie is now 12 years old but it's still such a I think a movie that really does still hold up and it's really interesting to see how looking back at this movie and especially when it comes just to war movies in general it's one that I think that a lot of people haven't seen because when it comes to like Americans at least it's a war that a lot of people don't really know about and two it's it's a foreign movie with subtitles and most people don't watch movies like that but and then you add in the fact that it was marketed as a documentary more so than anything else and most people don't watch those unless it's like on Netflix and everyone's watching it but I think this is if anyone likes war movies because of the historical aspect of it this is one of those movies that I think anyone should watch even though it's an animation throughout the entire time it has some really powerful and brutal moments that if you appreciate that in war movies this movie works for that which I think goes into why this film is important especially for Americans to know about a culture that you don't know or in a war that you probably either wasn't taught about in school or you know very very little about it but what do you think i totally agree with you i think this movie could be a great segue for anyone who's interested in the conflict in palestine israel lebanon in general and a great way into kind of trying to get to know about the history there and the history mm. of that war i think it's, it's factual enough and unbiased to a degree that makes it a good watch for anybody mm. despite those little remarks that i gave but remains true I think so mm -hmm. uh, in that sense it's a good movie to watch and also like you said there were scenes even though it's animation there were like fighting scenes I think that the powerful scene when the, the Israeli regiment that came by sea you know and the, how, mm -hmm. how they said out of fear they just went down on the shore and they started shooting and they shut up the first Mercedes car that, that they saw and they depicted how all that happened how the car was riddled with bullet and then later on mm -hmm. like when the guy asked him what was in the car he told him we had killed the whole family you know so there was powerful scenes yeah. you know I don't want to give too much of a way of the movie for someone who is listening and has not seen it yet but they were great scenes very well de depicted and powerful even though it's an animation mm. you will still feel it and the fact that it is you know true and factual I think it brings the best of both worlds it's not like an mm. action movie that's kind of loosely tied to reality which most Hollywood movies are especially when it comes to wars in, in the Middle East you know like Americans and their allies are always the saviors and the Arabs are always the assholes and like the terrorists, right? <laughs> this right. kind of documentary actually tells true events and highlights the mistakes that had been done on the Israeli side mm -hmm. and as well the, the ugliness and the mistakes that, that happened also on the other side especially in the massacre of Sabran Shatila. I think it's a great great watch I highly recommend it yeah same here alright so if this is your first time tuning in what I always do with a guest is have a set of questions and this is based on the TV show inside of the actor studios because James Lipton passed early this year on March 2nd Lipton took his inspiration from the French book talk show host Bernard Pivot who had a similar questionnaire at the end of 
every episode on his show of apostrophes. However, it was not invented by Pavot, it was invented by Marcel Prost. I was a big fan of Lipton's Inside the Actor's Studio, so to keep his memory alive, I thought I'd have a list similar to his at the end of each episode whenever I have a guest on. Now, I'm not going to keep the exact question here that James Lipton has done. I'm just like he did not keep the exact same questions that Pivot did, but I do want everyone to see where my guest heads at when it comes to movies. So this will be a little bit of fun. So let's get started. Coronavirus aside, um, even though you guys in Canada are a little bit better than us here in the States. How often do you watch movies at the theater? Not not a lot, twice a year. On the opposite side of that, again, coronavirus aside, how often would you watch movies at home? Let's say once a week on average. Okay. Which actor or director, you can kind of pick one, will make you watch a film no matter what? Oh, what's, what's his name? <laughs> like I'm blanking out. All right, Matt Damon is great. I love Matt Damon. I also, <laughs> uh, also like, what's his name? The Italian guy. <laughs> that Titanic. doesn't help very much. <laughs> Leonardo, Leonardo DiCaprio. DiCaprio. But yeah, I love Leonardo DiCaprio's movies, Matt Damon movies also. I like, I like, I like Okay. Do you prefer digital or hard copy movies? I, I don't buy a lot of hard copy stuff. I usually, it's more okay. convenient. I don't have to yeah. worry about storing it. <laughs> what movie related profession would you like to attempt if you could? Stunt car driver. <laughs> So what is your favorite movie or movie genre if you can't pick one? Uh, action movies. What is your least favorite movie or movie genre if you can't pick one? Horror gore. Best Batman actor. The guy from American Psycho, Christian Bale. Is it biopic or biopic? I think biopic. And the last question is, if heaven exists, what would you like to hear said to you when you arrive at the pearly gates? Uh, welcome to heaven. <laughs> <laughs> You know where the hell I am, right? Is this some sick joke where the gates open and you're in hell? <laughs> <laughs> so that wraps it up. Thanks, Nasir, for coming on. Thank you. This was fun. Now, uh, if somebody wants to reach out to you, how do they do that? So you can reach me on Instagram. My Instagram handle is Nasir underscore AZ. So N-A-S-S-I-R underscore AZ. Or you can email me. My email is Nasir, N-A-S-S-I-R dot a-b-o-u-z-i-k-i at outlook.com feel free to reach out if you have any questions or you just want to discuss the movie topic or anything else i don't mind yeah thanks again for coming on appreciate it no problem um, my pleasure all right uh talk to you soon yep see you bye what do you think of the movie let me know hit me up on social media the former review is on facebook twitter and the gram i post many things including trailer reactions so go check those out the handle is all the same it's at the former review feel free to also check out backseatdirectors.com where i work with a big team to put out movie reviews and also editorials again that's backseatdirectors.com please also subscribe to the former review we're on google Podcasts, apple Podcasts, spotify we're now on amazon music iHeartRadio. honestly pretty much anywhere you can find a podcast we have our content there also i'm always wanting to grow and improve so please leave a review and what you want to hear because i really do this for you all i see the numbers and i really appreciate everyone supporting me and talking to me about movies because frankly that's what it's all about and for anyone who has supported me on a financial basis thank you again and if you want to help support on a financial basis please go to anchor.fm forward slash the minus sign formal minus sign review and click support this podcast and honestly any donation is appreciated thank you all again for tuning in and until next time wear your mask wash your hands stay safe and take care everyone thanks for tuning in to another episode of the formal review 
Cheers, and we'll see you next time.